Friends, tonight my goal is simple. I want to offer you encouragement. Because you and your ministries are worth the time. Ministry is hard. And the times in which we live aren't going to make it any easier. And I know a lot of you aren't just tired. You're exhausted. You're wearied and worn out by the exhaustion that comes from carrying that accumulating weight of grief. The grief of having gone through the last three years that were probably some of the hardest years of your ministry thus far. It's the grief of ministry in this post-COVID world that you didn't sign up for when you went to seminary. It's the grief of all those statistics that we see that tell us that the future that lies ahead is far less shaped like a cathedral and much more like a cistern. It's the grief seeing another pastor caught in scandal, another church close, another pastor step down, another denomination split. It's the grief of that family you thought would never leave, tell you that they're moving on, if they even say anything to you at all. It's the grief of constant criticism or being compared to other pastors and wishing it didn't bother you so much. It's the grief of investing so much to build up your church, yet low turnouts, low attendance, and disinterest just seem to be a constant reminder that church no longer seems to occupy the same place in people's lives as it once did. It's the grief of watching that couple you spent so much time with call it quits, or feeling like you were pulled in so many different directions while at the same time trying to care for your spouse whose health is failing or for your own kids who seem indifferent towards the faith. It's that grief of feeling like a fraud on Monday morning, and you're all alone. Or just the simple grief of trying to be a husband, a father, and a pastor, all at the same time, and constantly feeling like you are failing at all three. And Brother Zep is just scratching at the surface. Because that list goes on. And over time, all of that can just add up to a deep sigh of the soul. To where if you are honest with yourself, it's a hopelessness that sets in. And you start to wonder if you're going to make it. If you want to keep doing this. Or if you should be doing something else. And we can't lie to ourselves, friends. The bad news is that, honestly, a lot of those things are never, ever going to go away. But here's the good news. That the hope that is available to you has nothing to do with them. And the encouragement I want to offer you tonight is about answering one simple question. Do you have any idea who it is that's coming for you? Do you know who's coming for you? Have you forgotten? The passage we're looking at is from 1 Thessalonians. I want to break it down into three parts. Part one is the past, part two is the present, and part three is the future. I'll give you a second to process the complexity of those three points. 
But this passage actually deals uh, with all three. So part one, the past. The Thessalonian church was a special one to Paul. I think if an apostle was allowed to have a favorite church, the Thessalonian church just might be his. They'd suffered with him. They'd supported him. And he'd sent Timothy to check in on them. And when Timothy came back, he brought back all of their questions with him because their hearts were heavy with grief. And they were looking for comfort. So what was their question? Their question was simple. So what about the dead? What about the dead? Evidently, tragedy had struck this church in Thessalonica. Death had come to their door. Perhaps the death of a child or a beloved church member. Maybe it was sickness or plague that wiped out half of them. Maybe it was martyrdom or being killed in persecution. Whatever it was, they were grieving. And they were asking, Paul, what about the dead? And they were concerned because even though they believed in the second coming, what about those who died before it happened? Did they miss the bus? Were they lost forever? Did their death mean that they'd gone to a place where they were now irretrievable? But in those concerns, the pastoral ear can also detect another question. What about us? What if we die before Christ returns? Will we be okay? Sure enough, to us, that may seem like a simple question, but we have to remember that the Bible is being written as this question is being answered. Christianity was brand new. They didn't have bookshelves filled with 2,000 years of rich theological reflection. And the Thessalonians were trying to understand who is Jesus and what really is the scope of all that he accomplished in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection? So Paul, what about the dead? So what does Paul offer this grieving church? He says in verse 13, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. It's an amazing response, of which the world and all of its values couldn't possibly make any sense. He says, brothers, I want you to grieve with hope. I want you to grieve with hope. Because these Thessalonians lived in a world that didn't offer them any. They lived inside of a savage, brutal Roman Empire whose philosophers and thinkers only offered the most dark and dismal view of life. Sophocles wrote, The highest desire remains never to have been brought to life. Another wrote, Happy are those who saw not the sunlight after the birth pangs. And another, The gravestone is not cut by iron but worn away by tears. They lived in a world that simply left them in their grief and their sorrow and their wondering, will Jesus leave us here too? So how does Paul offer hope to them? He says for, in verse 14, he says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. 
He's, he's reminding them of the deepest heart of all Christian theology, our most profound hope. It's our union with Christ. How your life is bound up in Him. Your life is irrevocably connected to Him. His life is your life. It's the joyous heart of all Christian theology that says what's true of Jesus is true of you, friend. His standing before God is yours. His perfection is yours. Just as Jesus is the Son of God, so too you are a child of God. The same love the Father has for Him, the same love He has for you. Just as Jesus will reign over all things, so too you will reign with Him as a co-heir. So when Paul is asked the question, Paul, what about the dead? He says, do not listen to the hopeless lies of the surrounding world. And remember our confession. That's where your hope is found. Remember Jesus and remember what's true of him. That just as Jesus died and rose and will come again, so too those who have fallen asleep have died in him. They will rise in him and they will come again with him. Because what's true of Jesus is true of them. Friends, that is the same confession we hold at this table. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And in that confession, we are also saying that we will die. We will rise and we will come again with him. Because what's true of Jesus is true of you. For what is your only comfort in life and in death is that I'm not my own, but I belong body and soul to Jesus Christ, my Lord. Paul doesn't want that to just be a platitude. Paul wants them to know that and feel that deep in their grieving bones. But remember what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't offer them hope by saying it's okay, they're in a better place. He doesn't say, well, at least their suffering is over. No, he doesn't offer hope as though it were some place that's ethereal and mysterious. He doesn't offer hope as though it's just some bumper sticker platitude. Do you actually see how Paul comforts them? And do you see how he would comfort you? He doesn't say anything to try and remove their grief. It's because he knows that there is a hope that can only be found in grief. There is a joy that can only be found in sorrow. When I was in sixth grade, I will never forget being checked out of Mr. Holiday's science class. As a close friend of the family had come and checked me out, got me out of school, and then she drove me and my two sisters an hour north to Columbia, Missouri, to the hospital because my grandma was ending her struggle with cancer, and she didn't have much time left, and they were gathering the family together. I never experienced death. This was my first encounter with death. And so they were allowing us to go in a couple at a time to just see her and to say our final words. And when I went in, I didn't know what to expect, but it wasn't what I really saw. You know, when you're in sixth grade, you don't really have a grid for that. So I walked in, and I saw her, just an empty shell of the woman that she was, all those tubes hooked up, all the monitors and the beeps. And I remember I walked out, of that ICU through these really large double doors into this open hallway, and I just broke down. Just bawled my eyes out. 
It was the first time I'd ever felt that kind of grief. And a little while later, I remember we were all sitting in the waiting room outside the ICU, and it was like the wake had already started. It was so quiet and heavy. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we hear people burst out of the ICU laughing hysterically. Laughing. It's like hysterical, like witch cackle kind of laughter, okay? And so we were like, who, who would have the audacity to act like this? Who, is, who would be so insensitive to do this in the ICU? So I, we look around the door, and it was my mom and my great-aunt Jackie and my Aunt Michelle laughing hysterically with tears streaming down their face, unable to gain their composure. And when they finally did, we said, what in the world has gotten into you guys? What happened? So they told us that when they were all three in there, sitting by my grandmother's bed, they decided that they wanted to start singing to her. And so they chose my grandmother's favorite song, her favorite hymn, The Old Rugged Cross. And I'm not talking like the cool Johnny Cash version. I'm talking like three women that really are not known for their singing voices whatsoever. And so they start to sing, and they're going along, and then my Aunt Michelle decided that she was just going to provide the moment with a little harmony which my Aunt Michelle has no business providing a harmony to any song ever. So they started to sing and they went along and then my great Aunt Jackie and my mom just completely forgot the words and they just started to kind of hum it and just limp through the song. My Aunt Michelle's doing her broke down Mariah Carey thing in the background and then it finally got to be so bad, they just burst out laughing and they couldn't stop. They were so disruptive that the nurse came and asked them to leave the ICU. And so they burst out of those doors, and that's how we found them. And then once they told us that story, it just got infectious, and then we started laughing. And we couldn't stop. It's one time I'll never forget how much my family laughed that day, of all places. That was my first encounter with death. It was also my first encounter with something else. The type of hope that can only be found in grief. A joy that can only be found in sorrow. This is what Paul is telling this grieving church. That there is a hope that can only be found in the ICUs, in the dark nights of the soul, and in all of those places where your life touches the curse of this world and experiences it in all of its dark and dismal and hopeless glory. You find that hope at the bottom. You don't find it at the top. It's the type of hope that surprises you because when you are willing to engage with that grief, you find that you are engaged with something else. And by someone else. And after all this, as gospel tells us, is it not light in darkness, joy in mourning, life in death? And the one to whom you belong is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So why would we be surprised when that's exactly where we find him? Part two is the present. What keeps us from experiencing this kind of hope? It's when our life becomes more about avoiding grief 
than finding hope. It's when we live as though we can build that life for ourselves that can minimize grief and sorrow. We can try to customize a life that can keep this broken world at bay. And so we don't experience that kind of hope because we're so prone to building a life that doesn't need it. And in verse 1 of chapter 5, Paul says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. He says Jesus is coming back, and we don't know when. But remember that you live in a world that will try to lull you to sleep with promises of peace and security. And this world is full of lullabies. These Thessalonians were in a vulnerable position because they were grieving. Because there's nothing like grief that will fuel that search for peace, security, relief in those moments to take it all away. We look for a way out something to make us feel whole again, something to make us feel secure, something to make us feel solid on the inside, something to take away the pain and to tell us that everything is going to be okay. And let's be honest, it's in grief that the world's promises, no matter how simple they are, can really start to sound so reasonable. Promises that say this is what will give you rest, this is what's going to get you through it. This is what will make you feel so much better. This is what will bear your grief and carry your sorrows. And instead of finding hope in Christ, we so easily and quickly try to escape from our grief. Consider your own life and your own ministry for a second. Has it become more about avoiding grief or pursuing hope? Maybe overworking and never slowing down helps provide that reason to avoid the sorrow of your spouse or the challenges at home. Maybe it's pouring that extra glass that just feels so well-deserved. Constantly scrolling or posting online because it's so much easier than confronting the pain of the people right in front of us, including our own. Or waiting around for those compliments after a sermon just wanting to feel needed and valued for a moment. What do you do when you feel unappreciated and overlooked, intimidated and overwhelmed, sad and sorrowful? The lullabies of this world are always loudest in our griefs and in our disappointments. And Paul is saying, beloved, do not listen to the lies. Don't live as though this world and all of its promises are all that you have. Don't fall asleep by thinking that you can make this world work for you. Remember that someone is coming for you. And not just in the second coming. Remember that someone is coming for you now. So do not avoid all of those places that Christ himself longs to meet you. And lastly is part three, the future. Don't you know who's coming for you? Paul gives us a glimpse of what awaits all of us. 
He helps us see into the future to look upon the day of all days, the last day of this world and the first day of a new one. He says in verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. Now, contrary to what's popularized and promoted every now and then on a billboard on I-30 in Dallas, this is not talking about the rapture where all the Christians are taken out and everybody else is left behind. Actually, this passage is talking about the complete opposite. And to see that, we have to understand that word that Paul uses when he says, meet. When he says that we will meet the Lord in the air. It's a technical term that's actually used to describe a very specific event. When a conquering emperor, a conquering king, would return to the city after battle, and they were making their way back to their throne. And the people would run out of the city to meet him and to greet him, and there would be music and celebration and festival and dancing as the people would rush out just to see a glimpse of him, just to get close and welcome him back into the city and giving him the praise and honor that he is due for being their conquering king. So what Paul is describing is how we will rise to meet our coming king. We will rise up and meet him in the air and follow him in his triumphant procession. This is not talking about Jesus taking us out of this world. This is talking about when Jesus comes to lay claim to this world. And when he does, to announce this coming king, Paul says that three things will happen. It says that the Lord will descend with a cry of command. The church has long held that this is the voice of the Father commanding the dead in Christ to rise. Secondly, it says that there will be the voice of the archangel who will command the angels to go out and gather God's people from every corner of this earth. And thirdly, there will be the sound of the trumpet of God to announce the arrival of the king. Now, some truths in Scripture you cannot apply with neat little points of application. The value of some truths can only be found through a deep meditation and reflection when we allow it to shape our God-given imaginations and give us a sense of anticipation and longing of the beauty that awaits us. And brothers, this passage is one of them. What's the loudest thing you've ever heard? It's the loudest thing you've ever heard. I have my engineering degree, which means I'm kind of a self-professed science nerd. And a while back, I came across an article that led me down the rabbit hole of the sheer, awesome, incredible power of sound. Sound is measured in what's called the decibel scale. And the decibel scale is not a linear scale, it's logarithmic, which means that the higher you go up on the scale, the sound level goes up exponentially. So for reference, our worship music 
during a service is around 90 decibels. A rock concert's around 120 decibels. And the loudest thing that I ever heard was at a Chiefs game at Arrowhead Stadium. Yes, I confess that I am a Chiefs fan, born and raised, always will be. And we're strange because sound level is very important to Chiefs fans, and we like to be as loud and proud as humanly possible. It makes no sense. We just do it. And a few years ago, Arrowhead Stadium set the world record for the loudest outdoor stadium in the world at 142.5 decibels. That's the equivalent of standing next to a jet engine as it's taking off. Now, I wasn't there when they set the record that day, but I have been there when it has been close. And being inside of that much sound is like nothing I can describe. It's so loud that even when you're screaming at the top of your lungs, you can't even hear your own voice inside of your own head. Because the sound outside of you is so overwhelming and it's sound that's so powerful it feels like it gets inside of you. A sound at 170 decibels would make your vision start to blur Your hearing would be permanently lost and you'd struggle to even take a breath because of the compression on your chest. A sound at 200 decibels would kill any human being. The Saturn V rocket that took the Apollo astronauts to the moon measures around 220 decibels when it launches and lifts off, which is loud enough to melt concrete. The Krakatoa volcano erupted at 250 decibels. It ruptured eardrums over 40 miles away, and the sound traveled around the world four times before it dissipated. A sound at 400 decibels would produce 30 times the energy output of the sun. It would kill everything within a two million mile radius, and it would cause an explosion so large that it would be visible from the very edge of our solar system. Behold the awesome power of sound. Now, how loud do you think it will be when all of creation hears a voice that can wake the dead? How loud do you think it will be when the voice of the Father commands the dead in Christ to rise? How loud do you think it will be when the voice of the archangel commands the host of heaven across the face of this earth? How loud do you think that trumpet will be when it announces the arrival of the one who spoke all things into existence by the word of his power? It will be a sound that makes the oceans rage, the volcanoes erupts, and it will bring the cosmos to a halt. It's a sound that will shake you to your soul, and it is a sound that will expose every thought and every intention of the heart. And it's no wonder that in the book of Revelation it says that all the kings and the rulers of this earth will mourn and wail at the sound of his coming. Because time is up. And this king comes with a ledger in his hand. A ledger of every wrong done, of every injustice, of every broken scale. A ledger that counts every penny stolen and every word spoken. He comes with the names of every orphan, and every widow, and every martyr that cried out for justice. The mountains will not be high enough. The ocean will not be deep enough to hide from this coming king that comes with a sword in his mouth and whose eyes are like flaming fire. It will be the most terrifying sound that announces that time is up 
Repentance is no longer on the table. And the world will watch the king of glory descend upon the clouds with more power than you could possibly imagine in 10 billion lifetimes. But for you, Christian, it will be the sweetest sound that you have ever heard. It will dissolve all of your anxiety and melt away all of your fear. It will be the sound of something that you have never heard before. Yet it's the sound of something that's still so familiar. Because it's the sound that you heard echoed in the laughter of your children, in the encouragement of a friend, in the I love you's of your spouse, in the singing of God's people, and in the quietness of your convictions. It's the sound of the one who's coming for you. And upon hearing it, the graves of this world will open. The sea and the earth will give up their, their dead, and you will feel yourself catapulted into the sky on the wings of an angel who's come to gather you unto God's people. And you, as you rise up on the crowds, all around you, everywhere you look, the skies will be filled with the saints of every age whose number is like the sand of the sea. And the family of God, the saints of every age, from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation will finally all be together in space and in time, in glorified flesh and blood. And in that moment, there will not be any hope. Because Christian, you will no longer need it. For Christian, you will see all the wonders of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You will see him in his fullness. You will see the one who has come for you. And he will draw you unto himself and you will take your place next to him among the clouds as you join in the procession of this conquering king. And we will be with the Lord forever. Don't you know who's coming for you? For the glory of Christ and the life of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would remind us that you are with us. You're the original man in black, one who comes acquainted with grief and our sorrows and our pain. We ask that you would remind us of this, and we ask that you would give us the courage and the grace to move towards you with those griefs and to find you in them. Help us to trust that you are good no matter what happens, no matter what comes. You are worthy of all honor, all glory, and all praise. And you are so tender and gracious towards us. You see us in our frailty. You remember that we are dust. And yet you breathe new life into us. And you will never leave us. You will never forsake us. Would you allow us to taste your grace at this table tonight? Unify us together by the power of your spirit, that we might glorify you and we might be transformed more into your beautiful image and that we might find strength in our life together. We ask all this in the powerful, beautiful name of our coming king. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.